Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. It's a red tide, this life of ours. If you don't stand up to it, let them know you're still an ape. Deep down where it counts, you're just going to get washed away. The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think they thought, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. You know, there have been a couple Hurricane Davids. How come there's been no Hurricane Tamler? <laughs> I, I can only guess that it's because of anti-Semitism. And I'm not saying it's explicit. I'm just saying it's... No, it's implicit. It's yeah. just pernicious. If there were, a lot of people would be killed. Hurricane Shlomo would. was a killer. <laughs> Is that a good Jewish name? I don't know. Ibrahim. Oh wait, that, that could be that could be Muslim as well. That could be Muslim. probably that would uh, people would be like boarding up their windows. <laughs> uh, shout outs to all our uh, Muslim listeners in the Middle East. We're not condo- We're not condoning it. Just um, like we don't condone sexism. <laughs> so today we're gonna take a shot at an episode that I think both of us regret. Probably our biggest regret. I don't. I don't have. I have favorite episodes. Oh, we were supposed to like tell people which ones of the archives. Remember, we were going to do oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we keep saying we're going to do that. Yeah. But one that we definitely would never have recommended is I think it's fourteen episode fourteen on restorative justice, which we just we just never felt we got right. So in this episode, this is going to be our attempt to make it right. Which yeah. is sort of what restorative justice is all about in the end. So, so, so it works out. So that's what we're going to do. But first, it was we got to talk 12, about by this. the way. Episode 12 is... Episode 12. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's episode 14? Snitches, Tattletales, and Whistleblower. Oh, no, that's a good one. It is. <laughs> but first, you want to talk about this hurricane study. Is this another one of you guys' social psych things? Uh, you know, I think, I think it... It is social psychologists, but uh, it's researchers at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, you say which, that already with contempt. You know, actually, okay. these are business school people, so I can say it with extra contempt, although I'm sure they're perfectly nice nice people. Actually, you know, I grew up in in Miami until I was, until I was nine, and we had plenty of hurricane warnings, and, is, and I can tell you right now that the gender of the name never affected my preparation. So well, it, 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 that's the sexism is 
not explicit, <laughs> according to the authors, right? Well, say what the study is. Okay, so in the study, the claim is that so so all hurricanes get named, and they get named sort of alphabetically through through the year. The Weather Service um, uh, gives tropical storms and hurricanes names, and I don't know how they choose the gender of the names. It's probably it's probably random, but they, it wasn't until. Um, I think 1979, yeah, that uh, they started... The year of Hurricane David, by the way. Yeah, that they started actually using both both genders uh, because male names were not used. It was all... It was all chick. Her all hurricanes were chicks before 1979. Um, so, so maybe maybe there was some tacit understanding that if only they gave them like terrible male names. Or- it was sort of it was consolation for not getting the ERA Equal Rights Amendment back. <laughs> like, right. All right, but we won't name all hurricanes after you. How about that compromise? <laughs> compromise. So the claim in this paper is that <clears throat> if you look at the data. More people die in uh, hurricanes that have been named after females than in hurricanes that have been given, so given male names, and the the explanation for this is that people, because of implicit sexism, <laughs> I can't say it without. <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of thing that she doesn't even pass. Like, like if someone brought it up in lab, I'd be like, surely, surely. Um, uh, (laughs) Why don't you go home, sleep it off, (laughs) and then... (laughs) You're drunk. Come back tomorrow with, like, your real idea. You're drunk. And it's not as if implicit sexism doesn't exist, but this is the the link, that people don't take the shit as seriously when it's named after a woman, and therefore they don't prepare as well, and that gives rise (laughs) to more deaths. Now, you're laughing at this, but you're the one who always says, look, we got to look at the evidence, and there's a lot of counterintuitive <laughs> results. And this is, a, this is a paper that provided a lot of data, right? Mm-hmm. So, are so you, you're so, just being like a climate skeptic by, <laughs> by laughing at this. You got to look. There's just not enough hurricanes. You can't just start at 1979. You got to look through like the thousands of years of hurricane naming. <laughs> Um, no, so so uh, part of the data that they look at really is looking at the data of fatality counts, so deaths per hurricane. And so they look at, at the actual data on fatalities and gender names. It, it's not strong data, and it depends, apparently it depends on which ones you take out of the equation. So, for instance, Katrina is removed because it was such an outlier. It, it looks really fishy in the, in the sense that, like, the kind of analysis that's used, the kind of way in which they selected which hurricanes would count, not what, what we now call infamously p-hacking. That, like, if you just, if you do enough tweaks, you can find marginally, like, you can find find small significant effects just by just by the way in which you treat the data and people might with full like well like well-intentioned people might deceive themselves into looking only at data that confirms their hypothesis and it really does not seem in, in their defense they made all of the data available so but when you really look at the data it doesn't seem as if anybody using any reasonable attempts at replicating with various different analyses and and including or excluding the outliers in a more objective way it just doesn't seem to be there i mean here's the thing that and i just see this on slate right now i'm looking at this on slate hurricane sandy 
the authors car- categorized it as very feminine. A nine on a that's crazy. First of all, that's crazy right there. So they characterized it as a nine on eleven point scale of femininity. Right, and it's not. Sandy is like Pat, right? Right. It's like not. It's like there's Sandy Koufax. Sandy. That was the name of the dad on um, the OC. A lot of the most famous Sandys are are men, and you take Sandy out, and now it's named. right. Then it switches. It right? switches. The effect switches. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, and that. So, I mean, right there. That's all you need to know about it. That Sandy. Um, now, it's true. They could argue that Sandy was Olivia Newton John in Greece. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these and, and they releases. say that it's like right that it's that we associate men with aggression right. and women with nurturing and care. We think like a female hurricane is going to it's going to hug you. Us. It's going to hug, hug you. <laughs> we can talk about our feelings with it, or maybe just annoy you. You know, like it's yeah. <laughs> just sort of nag you. It's like, and so like this is why like the, the why are you drinking so much? <laughs> this is not. It's like a projective test. Um, uh, yeah, but and so to like link something that I actually, I mean, that I actually think really is a problem, like per- pervasive implicit sexism, but like to link it to something like this is causing people to die because they're not taking shelter. Like that's just, uh, you're just, there's so, so much damage being done by this way of like. So many causes being set back. Exactly. Like, I even feel bad for hurricanes. <laughs> uh, you know what you're doing right now is you're bullying. You're <laughs> you're bullying these authors uh, I with know. your skepticism about. I don't know why you have to bully. Uh, I would like your fellow scientists. Uh, can we talk about that just really briefly? Yes. I, I, the, I, the bullying. I, so tell me what happened here because here's what I know. So somebody published something challenging replication saying that a certain results couldn't be replicated the authors of the original study claimed that the, the people who were doing this were bullying and dan gilbert very famous harvard psychologist and uh, very very wealthy harvard psychologist <laughs> came to her support yeah, yeah. Oh, okay so what happened is there's been, as as we've talked about before, there's been increasing increasing um, concern that a lot of these uh, our findings in psychology aren't robust, that they're they're due they're spurious effects, and that we don't replicate enough. So there's been like a amount like a real effort to encourage replication. One of these sort of organized attempts led by Brian Nosick and a few others who's at University of Virginia, they said, look, we're going to just pick a bunch of very, very like well-known findings in the literature, and we're going to get a bunch of people to just be willing, people who will be willing to attempt replications. So um, they published a special issue of a journal called Social Psychology where they uh, reported all of these, the, the results of these attempts to replicate. One of these attempts to replicate uh, a finding by a researcher named Simona Schnall, who um, had a, a finding on hand washing and moral judgment, was not replicated. She wanted to have to be able to re- reply to this, and it, originally the plan wasn't there wasn't enough room to let the authors reply. So she they had a back and forth, 
actually in a, a I think a very decent back and forth that was then published even like the the emails back and forth between Simona and Brian Nosek and the other editors of the journal were published and she was saying like look like I think there's a what's problem. the result the result so this was a study on disgust usually makes moral judgments more severe but when you have people ha- wash their hands after they've been disgusted that effect goes away I think that's the specific Simone is a friend of mine so is Brian like there was no I don't think ill will or sort of nastiness on the part of the original team of people replicating the editors of the journal or Simona there was some like being pissed off because like you know that's just fine that's it's okay to be pissed off but it was all respectful what happened is that people started taking sides and on Twitter like it got really just nasty and so people were accusing they were saying, like, well, if you, people who are trying to replicate these findings are doing it with ill will, they're just trying to, like, it's like a witch hunt. So this is where the start calling some people replication bullies. Um, <laughs> like, basically saying, like, I don't believe your findings, so I'm going to, like, go try to show that it's not the case. Like, there's a, and there's a bunch of issues with the way in which we do this, but this is all, like, good intentions. People are really trying to, I think, really trying to, to do it right. But then it got so nasty on Twitter, and Dan Gilbert just was on the side of these... He was saying, wait, like, wait, wait, wait. So it's all not. Ni- What's nice about saying, calling people who are trying to replicate these counterintuitive results bullies? Yeah, sorry. That part isn't nice. What I mean is that you do a finding, people attempt to replicate it, and they publish it, and there's a back and forth. I think up until that point, it's generally been nice and good. What, where it started getting ugly was just, as it always is the case, is the ugliness of the internet and like of Twitter, where people started. Because people do think some of these findings, just the way, the way that we were making fun of this hurricane study, for instance, mm-hmm. people make fun of some of, of these findings in the literature because they just seem so ridiculous. And so I think that the claim is that uh, people are going to people, – the people who are motivated to replicate some of these studies are really motivated to not find the original finding because they think it's bullshit. And I think this is what's behind some of the nastiness. Basically, the accusation of being a replication bully by essentially accusing people of being motivated to not find the original finding and of throwing it in their faces. And so, but Dan Gilbert really pissed people off by calling them bullies. He, and he, he used some words, some phrases. He said that the people who were trying to replicate were just second stringers who couldn't publish their own effects, which is like a really mean thing to say. And then he called Simona Schnall like Rosa Parks for like standing up for herself, like and like saying, <laughs> which is hey, that just... was like like the sorority girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Cunt. and in, yeah. in Simona's exact in Simona's defense, like I don't think she would ever call herself Rosa Parks. Maybe she was slightly defensive, but like, ah, but she would never like. And so Dan Gilbert, who is as you said, famous and tenured and at an Ivy League and well published, and for him to sort of like um, jump on this pseudo moral high ground, like what Dan the thing that bugs me of everything that you just said was Dan Gilbert saying these people are second stringers. Like, think about what you're doing there. It seems like the biggest problem right now with social psychology is people want to get sexy effects and that's how and and those are the things that get published and that's how you get tenure is to publish in a in a major journals and so they're going to be motivated incredibly motivated to get sexy effects and the idea that somebody wanting to check if those effects actually reflect reality is a second stringer who can't get their own effects all that what that does is just encourage people to 
fudge around with data and to come up with these kind of hurricane studies, you would think that someone like Dan Gilbert yeah. would know better. No, uh, yeah. I, well, think I don't know if I would think that. I, I don't know him at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that you're right in that the incentive structure is messed up. And, and this is what we're trying to correct. You know, a lot of, a lot of this effort is just a self-corrective effort. Publishing the, quick, the first time you get that sexy finding and being quick to publish it in like a two-study paper with a press release, that's like the, 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 easy, the easy way out. It really does seem messed up that, that people who are careful, who attempt to replicate their own findings, who do who collect studies with enough statistical power to actually find an effect if it's really there. You know, a lot of the problem with with just a, a whole bunch of our literature is, including my own studies in the past, which, you know, we're all embarrassed about, is that they're underpowered. You know, they just don't have enough subjects to find the effect if we really believe that the effect is there. And uh, so we're trying to correct that, and we're trying to make it so that that people aren't just the incentive isn't to take shortcuts and just eliminate Come up with the most counterintuitive, counterintuitive, coolest. eliminate the right yeah. outliers, you know, eliminate the Sandys, even if there are dicks who are involved in this replication uh, uh, effort to have like someone of such high caliber in the field, basically saying like for a young student. If you are, if you involve yourself in this replication project, I think that you are a fucking red shirt. You know, that's just like messed up, right? Like it's just. If only you guys were entirely only concerned with the quest for truth, like like us, like philosophers, (laughs) this would data free, yeah, yeah. data free. All we care about, we don't care about our careers. I really care about wisdom. We care about truth. And, and, this and is, we're not trying to score points. We're I mean, not I, trying to, you know, I, like, I think you, you guys... I, I think you're not wrong given some of the work that I've heard. <laughs> 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 you know, like variations on variations of thought puzzle variations. We couldn't be trying. We couldn't be trying to do sexy results. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Although, no, I think it's just that what philosophers find sexy is. Ooh, a counterexample to the 18th variation of this fake barn case or something like that. (laughs) That just is that like philosophers get hard. Like right now, a lot of philosophers who are listening to this just got a little hard or wet. I'm I'm losing. (laughs) I'm glad that you're finally correcting for some of your implicit sexism by acknowledging (laughs) the female sexual arousal in your jokes. (laughs) <laughs> Not just male sexual arousal. <laughs> All right, you want to take a break and come back and talk about what the ultimate sexy philosophy question is? We'll do that in the second segment. We'll be right back. Very bad wizards. 
the time has come to try to rectify past wrongs, we are going to to try to have another more productive discussion on restorative justice. We're, we're working out our, our differences. I think this was inspired by, in our listener feedback episode, we mentioned, I think my number one comment was a tweet by Dag Soros about this uh, execution in Iran that was called off by the victims' families at the last minute. That sort of reminded me, anyway, that it was urgent to get because I, I feel strongly about this issue and I feel like I don't know I find it frustrating when I talk to people about it and they don't agree uh, with you yeah like <laughs> I feel like I'm arguing with like creationists or climate change <laughs> skeptics or something you know here's when I knew we had to do this episode again is so after our first the first time we did it I'm talking to one of my friends from high school Dan Weiner he's an old friend from high school he said you know after that one he, we were talking on, on the phone and he said yeah I kind of found myself agreeing with David yes I love him already that's when I knew that you know maybe maybe it's me right <laughs> maybe it's me not that so that I'm wrong but I'm just not explaining it but. Uh, I think uh, that's I think it was it was um fraught with problems from the beginning um, so, so why don't you give uh, like uh, an uh, overview? Because I don't even. I, I, well, we, we, what, we don't I, have the, actually. Before we, I want to yeah. make it broad. I think this is a better way to enter into it than what we did last time. I'm sure I came out with both barrels blazing um, last time, and this time I just want to step back, and because I think the biggest obstacle to restorative justice is that it doesn't. Um, it really doesn't match up. This is a with our current conceptions about what justice is. But I want to examine that. So I just want to take a step back for first and just ask what what we're doing when we're trying to design philosophically a, a criminal justice system. Like what's the – what are the goals here? What are we after? What does it mean? Like I want to be like Plato for maybe the first and only time ever. <laughs> like I want to be like Plato and ask what justice I'm, is, I'm, but I'm specifically straight. criminal I'm, justice. I'm straight. Uh, you, you, can't be, you can't be Plato with me. Um, yeah, and, and so – Because you're not a little boy. Yeah, exactly. You, well, I am, but yeah, compared to you. Uh, what, so, and you mean here criminal justice, not like I mean criminal justice, justice yeah. right? So, um, you know, we know the kind of standard responses, the the, the retributivists, right? They, it's giving people what they deserve, the punishment they deserve for wrongdoing. And this um, this distinction between retributivism and and this restorative justice movement is something that I wanted you to talk about more because it because you have expressed retributive views like when we talk about revenge for instance like yeah it still seems to rely on some intuition that people are getting what they deserve um so i actually think and here's where i would probably part ways with a lot of restorative justice theorists that the two are very compatible and i think revenge is just a form of restorative justice it's not the form where they all get into a circle the whole idea behind revenge is just trying to make right what happened? So let me just ask you, just yeah. off the, what's the goal when uh, we're dealing with something like criminal justice for you? Like, what, what do you, what, what are we hoping for? What's the purpose of a criminal justice system for you? Yeah, like I would divide it up into, in at least into my intuitions being being both of the retributive kind, where I say, well, some people just deserve to be punished. 
um, for doing bad things. But at the end of the day, like I actually honestly believe the punishment should serve the function of reducing future crime. Right. Um, and so, so I have some, as much as I hate to admit it, some consequentialist intuitions, um, about what, like to me, it really is, it really is damning that let's say recidivism rates are so high or that like that strict laws don't like stricter laws don't seem to have a measurable impact on the rates of crime. And I think that at the end of the day, like to prevent crime is, should be the primary goal of having a criminal justice system. But primary, but not the only. But not the only one, right? Right. So, and and in fact, maybe the, yeah, I'm I'm particularly sensitive to to the kinds of purely utilitarian forms of punishment that don't that like seem to sidestep all my notions of dessert. I really do have a notion of dessert. That I guess it's the it's this notion of dessert. I want to step back. Like w- like what what do we even mean by that now? You say that right now harsher punishments don't seem to reduce recidivism rates, which or like the rates of the crime, crimin, like the rates of criminal behavior to begin with, and deterrence. Yeah, right. deterrence. But if you're a retributivist, you think that doesn't matter because the goal is to give criminals punishments they deserve, right? Uh, so it and they be- might deserve those those higher penalties. But the, I mean, here's the, the the biggest problem with retributivism, like just flat out, that is how you de- how you would determine. What punishment, like what quantity of punishment matches a certain degree of culpability? Uh, yeah, I think you're t- exactly right. We talked earlier about this, like one of the in the earlier episode, one of the problems that you raised was what, you know, the, the incarceration rates. And and like it is an issue that like what is the right answer to to what the amount of incarceration and punishment just accurately putting punishing those people who deserve to be punished and but it's still it's completely vacuous like empty with regards to how much people ought to be punished for certain crimes. How, that's where I think that that opens the door I think for restorative justice because if we abandon the illusion. That I think people have that there is this punishment out there that people deserve for the degree of culpability that they have for a particular crime. It, that was my entryway anyway is to, is to realize that and then to come back and think maybe the, the right way to look at this is sort of from the inside out. What's the most just outcome for just interpersonal wrongs? What do we want to do in those cases and – Maybe that can give us a better grasp at what we want to do with criminal justice. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Say somebody wrongs me by in my university. It's not a crime. It's not even like I don't want to bring a civil case against them, but I do want something to be done. So I don't know. What if they slandered me to the dean or said something that made themselves look better and made me look worse in front of the dean? Right. The Honors College, something like that, right? That wasn't like, accurate. So what do I want out of that, right? I don't want that person to get like a modicum of punishment, right? That's not the. That's not what I am after in those cases, They should right? just pay like, you $20. $20 for every insult that can more be anti-se- More, an- more anti-Semitism. <laughs> I wasn't even going there. <laughs> it's so self-hating. Like, what I want is for that person to apologize <laughs> And to set the record straight about me, right? right like right. that's what I want in those kinds of cases. They apologize to me. They say, "Look, I was drunk. Uh, I, I was at a party, and I said that, and I'm sorry. And I've, 
I'm going to talk to the dean and I'm going to tell him what happened. If that happens, right, then I'm then I feel satisfied. Right. Then I feel like justice. It's a really small case, right? It's really small, kind of wrong, but I feel like justice was done there. I feel better than if that person got demoted. If just like we have no kind of contact, but somehow this person suffered. That to me is the most just outcome, and I think restorative justice is builds on that idea that we want more than as victims. <laughs> we want more than just the criminal or the the wrongdoer to suffer a certain quantity of punishment we want to make it right in a kind of tangible sense and restorative justice is that's what it's trying to do it's trying to figure out how the victim and the criminal in this case the wrongdoer is a criminal to what extent can they make right what happened make it up to the victim for what they did and to, and anybody else who's involved like like a, a paid debt to society now is like a metaphor for just being in prison for 8 years but like in this for restorative justice paying a debt is like yeah you did something wrong you owe people something to try to make it right and you owe more uh, than just you suffering okay right? so so you get that could involve you suffering it almost definitely will involve you suffering but that's not the primary goal so you you gave me a, an article that we'll I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, it's a meta analysis on on the effects of restorative justice, but I'm appealing to it right now um, because they offer a broad understanding um, of what what restorative justice means. And so this is a quote from the paper: "The fundamental premise of the restorative justice paradigm is that crime is a violation of people and relationships, rather than merely a violation of law. The most re- appropriate response to criminal behavior, therefore, is to repair the harm caused by the wrongful act." As such, the criminal justice system should provide those most closely affected by the crime, the victim, the offender, and the community, an opportunity to come together to discuss the event and attempt to arrive at some type of understanding about what can be done to provide appropriate reparation. Which is, again, just what we would want to do in interpersonal wrongdoing. Right. right? What can we do to, to fix this? So this is, and I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up, but one of the main questions I have, like, my, or at least one primary problem that I have is this, this, it, this does make sense for interpersonal crimes, but, like, does it make that much sense for other kinds of viol- criminal violations? Like, uh, you know, what about tax fraud, right, or, or crimes that clearly just aren't interpersonal? Like, uh, you can imagine that this is a crime in some sense against everybody in the community, but not against any individual in particular, right? Right. Yeah, we're not doing restorative justice for that. Right, but I mean, so you can't build... The fact that you have restore, restorative justice policies doesn't mean it has to apply to uh, every crime, especially victimless crimes, right? The whole point of it involves a victim. If there are victimless crimes, then either you decriminalize it or you don't have restorative justice. No, I know, but... You, so a, I, you take but, a but utilitarian but suppose you could, But suppose... Uh, so the reason I, I think that it's important to bring these up is because you did frame it as a way to sort of... to sort of The whole point of criminal justice system. You're not just saying, like, there is a small sliver of cases in criminal justice where I think restorative justice might work. You're, you framed it as a more... Like, a more basic way to ground the entire notion of what it means for criminal justice. And so something like tax fraud, where there is, you could say that there is a victim in the sense that it's a collective, you know, it's like a a tragedy of the commons kind of problem that you and I are both affected when somebody doesn't pay their taxes. But we're not personally affected in the sense. Yes, that's correct. So, sorry, let me amend. When I'm saying that... I want to talk about the whole way criminal justice is is handled, right? And I want to start from these interpersonal violations. I don't mean 
that because we tend to favor restorative-like approaches for interpersonal violations, that therefore that means it will work for violations of law that are just not personal. They're not interpersonal. There's no real identifiable victim. Um, I think for those, you have to treat those like we treat speeding. Various rules that are in place for community safety or community flourishing, you just have to punish them. You have to find them. You have to, if it will work as a deterrent, put them in jail. I don't have strong retributive intuitions about those kinds of cases either. No. Then, yeah, no, of course not. But see, this is part of what I find frustrating is that is that people uh, – it's but, as if like but you find see, one counterexample. No, it's not, it's not that. It's not that we're finding one counterexample or I'm finding one counterexample. It's that you you make it a, a, out to be as if it's the grounding no, for I, an entire notion of criminal justice. And then you say, well, I'm only talking about this sliver of personal violations. So, so, but, so then you say like, well, obviously it wouldn't work in the case of tax fraud. So what do you, what do you it's mean not here a, by work? It's not applicable. Okay, it's so you don't mean, you don't mean that cases. utilitarian. You don't mean that the restorative justice is. You just mean it doesn't fit. No, it's just not applicable, right? Because restorative justice, the whole point of it is, you bring the victim and the affected community and the and the offender together to resolve the conflict. Okay, and that's just not that kind of case, and so it can't be handled with restorative justice. That doesn't that doesn't diminish the legitimacy or effectiveness of restorative justice in cases where the principles are applicable. Yeah. It just and means that it can't cover every case. Right. Just let's constrain ourselves to what kind of violations we're talking about, right? Like, so interpersonal violations with identifiable victims. So the idea and, and the, the argument that a lot of restorative justice people make is victims, offenders, communities – have higher levels of satisfaction. They're more satisfied with restorative outcomes when the restorative process is followed than um, than other than other approaches, retributive or or utilitarian. You might think, well, so what if they're satisfied? But again, this goes back to our question about what justice is supposed to be doing. And there's a great William. Ian Miller quote, justice, if it means anything, means having people feel it. And then in a Supreme Court ruling, there's a very similar sentiment, justice must satisfy the appearance of justice. So if people are satisfied that justice is, that actually has like, that that substantive reason, if you buy those claims, that justice is being is being served right right well another way to say it is it's not it's not as if you're arguing that the primary outcome of interest is satisfaction but rather like that is just simply an indicator that i actually think no i think it in large part constitutes it because or in you know not entirely but in in significant part constitutes justice because i can't figure out what else does well, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I get I get that that's what constitutes it, but it's not as if the 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 goal is to get those satisfaction numbers up, but rather those satisfaction numbers indicate what it means for something to have been just like yeah, yeah. I think that's right yeah yeah, yeah. so w- one of the claims at least like one that that restorative justice it actually has these outcomes like you can demonstrate that the outcomes are better than the traditional justice movement so and presumably. What's doing some work here is that if you have to face the person whom you harmed, then then this might actually motivate you not to not to harm. It might mean something more to you. It might mean something more. You might actually internal. You might like just seeing what you've done to somebody or somebody's family or whatever might actually. Um, So another, and I think yeah, very plausibly might. Very plausibly, I I suppose, uh, save for psychopaths. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and one of the outcomes is recidivism rates. Um, and, you know, it, it turns out that the data are actually like hard. They're difficult data to gather cleanly because it's not easy to randomly assign people to restorative justice when what you're trying to do is actually make make people voluntarily engage in these. So one of the big problems from an empirical standpoint if is, is how do you teach like the kind of person who agrees to a restorative justice approach might be very different from the kind of person who doesn't right and maybe less likely to commit the crime again maybe right. more likely to to be someone who will participate fruitfully in the process thereby making the victim more satisfied the affected community more satisfied and themselves more satisfied yeah that that is a problem but the data does show that when people participate in this process there are much lower recidivism rates. So actually, you know, Texas is, they're one of the leading states in pursuing this movement. They have two big programs, one called Victim Offender Mediation and the other called Bridges to Life. You can see this at bridgestolife.org. So, so here's how it works. A guy named John Sage, he was an LSU defensive back for LSU. Uh, now he lives in Houston, and his sister was murdered in 1993, got really depressed, and then he created this Bridges to Life program to try to help offenders but also help them realize the pain and suffering that they've caused to their victims. It's held in prison. There are 40 inmates at a time. It features victim panel discussions, facilitated, mediated small groups of inmates and in classroom-style lessons, um, 32 hours of this, then inmates are required. This is a big part of restorative justice, that they have to tell their story, describe the crime they committed, how they committed it, answer any questions. They have to write a letter to their family, to the victim's family, and read the letters aloud to the small group. You can talk about your faith, but nobody's required to pray, and there are non-believers and people from all religious groups. Dear Satan. <laughs> That's right. I mean, look, Satanists are people too. So the recidivism rate of these released offenders is 12.7%. Um, and the average recidivism rate in Texas is 30.7%. Right. So that's a huge difference. Now, it doesn't say here whether it's voluntary, but it has to be. I, right. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, but that said, in most of the data, you see drops in, re like major drops in recidivism rate, because one of the parts of restorative justice also involves reintegrating the offender back into the community and the community taking responsibility for that. And, and, and very high rated victim satisfaction. And even for something like sexual assault, which you might think that's the scariest. Uh, right. Well, this is and this is game. why I think, you know, this is come up, I think this came up last time. This came up certainly when you, when you came over to to give a guest a spot in my class and we talked about how these views like one of one of the big concerns is what you know, what if you don't want to actually face your the, the perpetrator. And and so this is why I think that the voluntary nature, at least in the in some of these cases, like it really is like you don't want to face your rapist. You you it might actually be horrible and traumatic. And and this is actually why what what I want to get at. I even though there might be data on how good these outcomes are, I don't think you want to hang your hat on the outcomes, because I think that you want to, you're making a principled argument about what justice ought to be about. Not necessarily like it may well be that that it, it does have better outcomes because it's a good match with our intuitions about what justice is or whatever. But you don't want it to be that, like, if the recidivism rate doesn't, doesn't change, then therefore restorative justice isn't. 
No, I mean, I'm like you. I'm a pluralist about the goals of criminal justice, and certainly one of them is reducing recidivism rates. Right, but if it and, didn't reduce recidivism it, rates, you wouldn't give up the cause, right? You think that it's a good, you value if, it. If it, if it. If it led to major, in, I don't know how much like higher the recidivism rate could possibly be, but if it led <laughs> to major increases in recidivism rates, then yeah, I'd be open to abandoning why, it. I'm not an absolutist about this. Uh, like, I, I think that that... That there are lots of goals, and, and you t- consequentialist goals, as you said, are important goals as well. I think restorative justice does a good job at meeting consequentialist goals, but if it didn't, then that would be a big strike against it. All I'm saying is that if it just had no effect, and I'm not accusing you of absolutism, I'm just saying you're not hanging it on—, on you're right. not an absolutist about the consequentialist arguments either. Like you don't right. like if it were zero. Like if the best data showed that it was like it's all explained by the kind of people who engage in, then you wouldn't be like. Right. Well, I mean, if it had no effect, I would. I think there are other good justice reasons to do it. If it had, I mean, and the, right. even if there was bad effects, I would think there are good justice reasons. They're just overridden by the consequentialist effects. That seems so I, reasonable I, for you. <laughs> I'm just not used to this kind of. Well, don't forget, I'm not a Kantian like you, so I don't just like subscribe to one categorical <laughs> yeah, yeah. imperative. I, like, you know, I got, like, yeah. I got the sneaky little absolutism uh, dig. I wasn't thinking that then. It was sort of like your anti-Semitism. You weren't even. It was implicit. It was, <laughs> it was, it was implicit anti-Semitism. Not <laughs> to be fair, I'm not an absolutist about my anti-Semitism <laughs> either. You like Yoel <laughs> sometimes. You dislike me, but you like Yoel. <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, I love you all. <laughs> and Paul Bloom. Um, ah, you have mixed feelings uh, about Paul. And Paul Bloom. Wait, wait, wait he's a Jew? <laughs> he's a Jew. Mel Brooks is Jewish. <laughs> you ever see that Simpsons? <laughs> this has all been really cuddly. Let's take let's talk about let's take a quick break and then talk about the biggest objections to restorative justice. Okay. Just wearing free, but what you say, I take none of it seriously. What you say, I take none of it seriously. Uh, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're going to keep uh, the discussion of, of restorative justice going, but really quickly, thanks for all the support on iTunes. We've gotten a lot of ratings, a lot of reviews. Please feel free to review us. 
on iTunes. Support us via our support page on uh, PayPal or by shopping through the Amazon link. We actually, last month was great. You guys are buying wonderful things. We don't look. Every once in a while we look and there's like sex toys. Is that you? That <laughs> the double dildo. Yeah. Exactly. Or triple, I think, is what it was. Uh, support us. Rate us. Email us. Verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet. Uh, Matt Welch runs our Twitter account and the Tumblr account. Uh, the Very Bad Wizards Twitter account. Tweet us at Tamler at Peas. We've gotten a lot of emails. Yeah, even after our email list. We read them all. Okay, so let's get back to restorative justice. Like, let's, let's put all the, like, nice niceties aside. You want to know kind of a shocking stat that I learned? I was at this revenge and forgiveness workshop a couple weeks ago, and apparently 93% of all cases are resolved through pleas. Only 7% of cases go to trial. 93% are resolved through pleas. Deals are being made. Resolutions are being arrived at. But instead of being between the offender and the person they committed the wrong to, it's between two lawyers who just don't give a shit about what happened except trying to make the best deal possible for their clients or for their constituency or... I mean, I thought that that was shocking to me. Right. Like... Again, sort of shattering the myth that justice is about this thing where, you know, we're we're trying to find that perfect just punishment um, that matches that fits the crime. Like, well, I don't I don't know that that means that there is not an attempt to find. Well, two things. I don't know. I think that you're straw manning it a little bit by saying that what the traditional notions of justice require is an absolute fit between punishment and the crime. Right, like, I think true. that it's fair. It's fair to say that it's like we know that it's a guess. Like it's a shot in the dark. What like, but let's you know. And and this is what we talked about a little bit when you were in my class. You can say like I'm not sure whether it should be two years or three years or five years. I, I'm pretty sure that it shouldn't be twenty years, and I'm pretty sure that it shouldn't be five days. Um, and there's like this imperfection. What I'm not sure about is whether or not restorative justice actually does anything good about this. It's one thing to just say like, well, there is no right answer. And so you can make the laws, you can give some flexibility so that the judge can have some say in the matter, and in fact they do. Or in the case of two lawyers, I mean, I share your outrage at like the two impersonal lawyers getting paid shit tons of money to bargain. But maybe that is a way of balancing. Like the adversarial system is saying like, well, look, there's no right answer. You say 20, I say 5, and we get to 10, and maybe, hey. Yeah, like the, so if there's no right answer, which is what I think, that there's no right answer to that question, <clears throat> then how about letting the people who were affected, the, the people who are directly involved in the offense, in the conflict, how about letting them come to their own resolution rather than a DA or an assistant DA and a lawyer who are who are coming to the resolution for what, much different reasons, right? They have different interests that they're thinking about. Again, I go back to non-criminal cases of wrongdoing. If if you wrong me in some way, right, we would never think that it, it's irrelevant what we both decide is a way to make that right. If I'm satisfied and you're satisfied, then third parties would be satisfied. They'd be like, okay, they worked it out. Good. And so that's the, that's the idea. But if, if there's no right answer, then let the people who are involved come up with the the answer that best satisfies them. I, I'm, but I'm not. 
I'm not sure that that follows. It's just because there's no there's no precision in the answer, right? Yeah. So you might say, like, it's not 14.5 years is not the right answer, but that doesn't mean that it's not somewhere between 10 and 20. Right. So I don't want to give up that there is a right answer or that there is, like... There are boundaries and of it. Maybe the right... There are boundaries. But, like, here's one reason. This gets to the heart of my objections with it, is, like, what if I really am anti-Semitic, right? Or what if I really am racist? And, like, you leave it up to, like, a, a black person breaks into my house, and then I say, like, well, death penalty. Fuck it. There's no right answer, buddy. Death penalty. Okay. So a couple of things. I think that's a good that's a good point. I think that's a serious objection to restorative justice is bias. But 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 that example straw man's restorative justice cuz like as you saw with the Braithwaite piece, every restorative justice program places a ceiling on the amount of punishment that um so that that, why? that that a person can get. You can't say death penalty for breaking into your house and have it happen. That wouldn't happen under restorative justice, right? So, Well, it wouldn't happen as the policy as we have it, but it's not clear that it couldn't happen if restorative justice, as you've described. Like what, no, no, it is clear I guess that because have- one of the principles of restorative justice is that there are upper limits to, to the amount of punishment for a particular kind of crime. Here's where it just borrows from retributivism right. and just says, look— uh, anything above this would be unjust, and it doesn't matter if the victim wants it. It doesn't matter even if the victim and offender agree on it. It's not happening. I'm actually in favor of even having like a lower – like a, a floor for the punishment. Like, right, because that's the other yeah. – that's another problem. And, and I think this is, a, this is one of the things that maybe people, including me at first in the, in the first episode, it's, it seems to be equated mostly with leniency. Right. And for, I mean, there's empirical data that restorative outcomes tend, like, victims end up wanting less punishment than the amount of punishment they would get in non restorative processes. And just as a matter of practice, I think the people who do restorative justice tend to be sort of forgivey, cuddly, huggy, touchy feely kind of people. Uh, or as you call us, Christians. Yeah, or Christians, exactly. <laughs> New Testament. <laughs> and so I think it's been it, – it has that – I don't know if you call it stigma, but yeah, kind of a stigma. And in fact, one of the big criticisms of the movement is called compulsory compassion. Like it just forces people to have compassion and forgive. Um, but I don't think that's inherent to restorative justice. It's, I don't even think it's inherent to how it's actually practiced. I just think it's inherent to how some of the people who – defend it. At least the kind of restorative justice that I would favor is having an upper limit of punishment so that your racism or anti-Semitism can't lead to the death penalty for some poor Jew that breaks into your house uh, to feed his family. His family needs some gefilte fish and... (laughs) You're stock. You're like hoarding gefilte fish for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, you can't have the death penalty for that to guy him, to keep him away. <laughs> to keep him away from the Jews. <laughs> this is horrible. Let's just make it clear that what I'm talking about is the you know the typical racist person like you. So, <laughs> so um, like yeah. So you have upper limits, and I even think you have lower limits. Like I don't know. You have some real hardcore Christian who wants to forgive the murderer of their daughter. No, they don't get to go free after they just killed a, a child. You know, you have to have lower limits too. You have to, and, and I think those lower limits can be defined in part also by utilitarian considerations. But within, there's a big range there. And within that range, 
is where I think restorative justice has the most possibility. Like that's that's the negotiating space is with within those upper and lower limits. And that's where I would rather that the people actually affected by the offense work that out. I'd rather that than yeah. two lawyers who just are just trying to increase their hourly Right, but but let's also remember that it's not it's not just two lawyers. It's two lawyers that are heavily constrained by the letter of the law. So one of so one of the issues that people have raised with restorative justice is, especially when you bring in say community standards, is is suppose that you have this range, which I like. I was going to push you a little bit on, like because where do you come up with those limits to begin with, and then which is also grant, a fair point, yeah. right? If you grant, um, but but say say that you have a community. At, you know, I think this was in, in New Zealand, maybe. Right? So where you have violence toward women, you say you have some sexual assault, and now the community gets to sort of um, to to take to have a say. So sometimes it's not just victim and perpetrator; it's the community that's involved. Right. And say the community standards are actually quite sexist about violence toward women, and so you have leniency toward sexual offenses. And the women themselves are like, "What well, fuck? We don't we don't endorse these views that our community endorses." And so, can the letter of the law being able to constrain things like exactly how much time ought to be given for murder one, murder two, murder three, sexual assault, all of these things? I think is actually, I don't, I kind of don't want to leave it up to the ad hocs, even when it's constrained in this wide sense. Like, I don't. There's some things that I don't want to leave. Too. Well, so uh, here's the thing. If, if you have a community that's lenient about sexual abuse, yeah. right, chances are they're not going to have laws that constrain it anyway, right? And so – Well, you could, you could have a set of – you could have legislation that constrains it. And so that so – that and I take it that, that the popular conception, say, of racism did not change as quickly as the laws changed. Right. That's so. true. That's fair. So, so let, me, let me distinguish between two objections, one of which I think is bullshit and one of which I think is totally legitimate. Okay. okay. Uh, the first objection is that if you do restorative justice, almost by definition, de- uh, maybe by definition, um, you will give offenders with the equal culpability, right, the, who commit the same crime with the same culpability, same moral responsibility, can receive different punishments just based on what the victim wants and how that works, right? right? So that's one, like just the injustice of that. Two right. offenders who like did it's the moral same luck thing. That you got like a Christian. And it's moral luck right. that you got a Christian. Instead in fact, of, you should like scam Christians Jew. more often, or whatever. What? That would just make you scam Christians more often, or what, right. you know, whatever the data said. So that strikes me as the objection that's bullshit. I think that's like part of the American obsession with everything being precisely fair. To me, that's like a whiny objection. But, but isn't, like, isn't it's this like the I, very I, objection of bias? Well, no, no, no. So that's the legit. So when those differences are the result of of prejudice, of like ingrained or institutionalized or just personal bias and prejudice, right? That's when I think that objection has force. So if it but turned out right that you know in restorative justice <laughs> processes, right, this would bother me, right? That white victims were insisting on higher punishments for black offenders than white offenders, I, I would consider that to be a problem. I would not consider it to be a problem if there are just different punishments for different people just across the board, 
right? But when there's a systematic pattern of discrimination, in it, then I would think that was a problem. And I honestly, but I don't like, want it to be spurious either, right? Like I don't want it to depend uh, either on characteristics of say the ethnicity or the gender or whatever of the perpetrator but nor do i want it to to depend on the spurious sort of like whether or not you're a particularly vengeful victim see that that's the biggest place where we disagree i think when you commit a crime you are rolling the dice you might have a vengeful victim you might have a forgiving victim that's just part of the deal. Just like life. Just like the rest of life. You right. cheat so on like one you, wife, yeah. uh, she might take you back. You cheat on another wife, she, she might, might throw your all off. your clothes and furniture out on the lawn when you come home. Right? Like, right. that's just life. And so I don't have a problem with that unless it's like another instance of a pattern of discrimination. And then I, and then I do – and I actually think that's an empirical question because I, I don't know. Maybe I'm naive or optimistic, but I think you put like white victims and say black offenders in a room and they're going to actually see more like that's going to do more to appreciate the humanity of both than the current system we have right now, which, of course, by the way, is extremely racist, right? I mean, no one could deny that our current criminal justice system is infused with racism. So okay, I actually flush, think restorative justice out. could, 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 could <laughs> like, affect that. Uh, so, so I'm intrigued by your claim that the current justice system is racist. I, mean, I agree, but I want to know why you think so. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you just look at the stati- the number of like you know people, I think someone just wrote a book called "The New Jim Crow," which is just about the criminal justice system. the 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 ratio of black offenders to white offenders is huge. The number of black criminal <laughs> controlling for the kind of crime they commit, the number of black criminals who are on death row and who have received the death penalty is much higher than the number of white criminals. Right. So so then. So here's the here's the issue. So you have so the reason that it's so obvious that there's injustice being meted out, like, is that the presumably the laws for murder one uh, are consistent, right? They should not take race into account, right? So we say like, okay, you commit this kind of crime under these conditions, you either get the death penalty or you don't. And it turns out that there are more black people who black males especially who get the death penalty compared to say white males who commit the exact same kind of crime right. that's not a problem with the laws well that's it a problem is with because the there's no way to apply that law right well, like the, like you judges just... eventually have to make sentencing decisions or juries whoever the sentencing body is they have to decide how much weight to give a mitigating factor and you can't provide an algorithm for that ultimately no, you, some of these right, things are so subjective why, so the judge so the judge here is deciding whether how much time or whether or not to give the black guy the death penalty right now presumably the judge is making an error here because they're systematically giving white people less time than black people Right. So a judge is doing that. This is not a pro- this is not a problem with the laws on the books. This is a problem with people, and this is a judge facing this is a judge facing that black man in the courtroom in the very way that you're arguing no. through your optimism. See, that I disagree with. I don't think well, he's this is, facing him in that exact way. First of well, all, he he's hasn't not the been vic- wronged. What he hasn't even been wronged, right? So he has no vindictive nature, right? So but I, he does have how- a job. To maintain, a lot of judges are elected, 
and he just has his own his his own prejudices and is his number one concern and he can be influenced by all sorts of unconscious biases is whether he's following the law right in yeah. ideal cases right yeah. but the the things that will inform him on that judgment are vulnerable to all sorts of implicit and unconscious biases. But, but I don't see how, like, a victim in in the like would be not prey, fall prey right. to more of those. I, I think there's reason to worry that they'll fall prey to it. You think I just that, don't the think the average that, person that, that is it, less prejudiced than the judge. No, no, no. The average person who's interacting with their offender is less. I mean, this is a purely empirical question, right? And maybe I'm hopelessly naive about this, but I actually think like that's like bringing two people two different. Like if you're if you're confronted with the kind of person that you're prejudiced against, and you're confronted in a real way where you guys interact. You're interacting and, and explaining, and like the, the the offender is explaining what they did and why, and the victim is explaining how that affected their lives and how much suffering it costs. Like I I think that has potential uh, because I think familiarity is what ultimately leads to diminished racism and and sexism and uh, homophobia and all of that like increased familiarity just like understanding that this person is a human being and not like whatever construct you've made in your mind like that i think that has the potential to do a lot of good and but there will still be racism there'll still be prejudice but but, i mean that that is like an empirical question and and you know there is decades of work on under what conditions you have to have contact with somebody like for it to be right so like you know sit like the the most obvious cases like in the southern states or in the pre-civil war era or in the pre-civil uh, rights era there was a ton of contact between black and white and that did not eliminate there's more contact between black and white in racist states than there are there is in non-racist states so it's not, not obvious yeah, that okay. in the, under those conditions that would be enough to reduce the prejudice like it sounds like you're talking about a beautiful ideal case in which like the victim's crying and the criminal's like i never meant to do this to you and and, and maybe though there are a lot the of cases in playing. which this, <laughs> yeah like, like exactly like, especially like a like a special episode of touched by an angel you know or like, <laughs> like and I don't I mean maybe that is the case for people who engage in restorative justice now um you know so it's hard to tease those apart but like I guess I am a bit more cynical about the ideal conditions under which prejudice So is then reduced. there'll have to be more constraints you know like I really think I think restorative justice is the classic example of perfect being the enemy of the good just start out with the assumption with criminal justice that we'll never get even close to perfect Right. And that the goal is to figure out, like, what's the best possible approach. This is why I'm such a pluralist about this. Like, I just think there's so many things that enter into it. I think prejudice is a real problem. That's the thing I'm most worried about, actually, is bias and prejudice. You're uh, so – what's the matter? What did you – did you take ecstasy before this? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I took ecstasy, but that's not why I'm saying <laughs> it's, not, it's just a weird coincidence. <laughs> it's a, that was a get you made like gettier right look i just taught a class on punishment ask my students this is the one that really no, I, I believe you i believe you 
I I think that like it's not that people are trying to be perfect that makes them give black people more death penalties than white. No, no, people. no. It's that it's the my, that's not my point. My point is that the objection to restorative justice is there are still these problems that restorative justice can't solve, which is true. And when I say perfect is the enemy of the good, or in this case, the enemy of the better, right? Yeah, restorative justice is not going to solve all the problems, but it's better. Like, it's closer to solving more problems, I think, and deep problems, deep problems about what justice is all about than than other approaches. I mean, yeah, I take it that's the conclusion. I'm just not sure that you got there. If you think about it just a little harder, you will. (laughs) Ah, I get it now. I get it. You keep going to the pantry to make sure your gefilte fish is still there. (laughs) I feel like someone totally wants it. (laughs) I keep hearing people (laughs) crawling through the hallway, like listening for my gefilte fish. Um, And I do think when you're confronted with that gefilte fish, (laughs) thief... Have a half a that this will be like a valuable thing for both you and the thief, like to both recognize. Oh wait, like I, I can't just break into somebody's house and steal their good field fish. I promise say, to give them life instead of the death penalty because <laughs> I see the pain in their that's, eyes. That's all. Then you know what? This episode is. <laughs> I think we're done. I think we've wrapped it up right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think this is a we was yeah. a happy ending to our restorative circle trick. Yeah, let me just also say though that I also that I think one of the big things the, uh, this would be my closing. You can say uh, something afterwards, but I think another people's big problem is that it's too touchy feely and cuddly. And I think restorative justice is actually like harder. <laughs> if anything, you are giving you are completely disabusing people of that notion because I don't Am think anybody I? can appu- I don't think anybody can accuse you of being touchy feely. Right, exactly. And so and yet, in fact, yeah, somebody yet, said yet that to me favorite. like, I can't believe you're. Oh, Josh knows. <laughs> it was when I was driving him to the airport because we were both going right. to the airport at the same time he's like you know it's funny i, I you know i'm not going to try to do josh no <laughs> but like i wouldn't peg you as a restorative you're all you seem like you're all about like revenge and you know like i was right. like yeah but that's just that's just that's part like it's all part of the same piece which is that justice is personal you know like that justice should be personal that, that this is conflicts provide an opportunity for people to engage and, uh, and and that can be hard and that can be scary. And and there's no guarantee that it's going to result in just everybody <laughs> hugging. And even though those are the kinds of cases that people trot out, that's not how, all, you know, all restorative justice cases resolve. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of and then there's a lot of pride. And so so like this isn't just like we all get around and look at our lava lamps. Revenge, revenge is restorative justice in some cases for you. Um, yeah, that's right. So, that's right. Yeah. so okay. On that note, just completely unrelated. Uh, I was talking to Paul Bloom, and let's just end on this. Um, uh, he uh, about good TV. Have you seen Fargo, the TV show? The TV show Fargo. Okay, so I've only watched the first episode. So please, oh, no okay. spoilers because I don't. Know. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 there's no spoilers. I, I was, I was curious about your. Uh, yeah, this is very personal Are violence, but I think these. Uh, no, I'm on episode three. I was looking for something to satisfy this particular itch after True Detective, and I think that Fargo might be there. Yeah, it seemed like it was. Mm, I yeah. mean, anything that like Martin Freeman. Tim from The Office, <laughs> and then Watson on Sherlock. He's great, and he's, his Minnesota accent is great. You, you, 
Well, I don't know how you might he know slips better into, than me. Yeah, unfortunately, like I can tell when he slips out of it. But yeah, <laughs> oh, no, Billy Bob Thornton is it was amazing. I mean, he's just a great psychopath in there. Like he's just just a classic. At the psychopath. end of episode one, where he talks that cop into just not stopping him. Ah, oh, just chilling. Yeah, I mean, there is something about like a bit, his portrayal of a psychopath that really is chilling. And maybe we can get, when we get Walter, Senator Armstrong, who's going to be our next guest, maybe we can talk a little bit about psychopathy. Cause, and uh, also contrastivism. <laughs> contrastivism. So what is a psychopath? What is not a psychopath? That's so Let's sexy. Let's answer that question first. <laughs> it's not sexy at all. <laughs> it makes me soft. That's how not sexy it is. <laughs> You had a raging heart on just talking to me about <laughs> totally restorative justice this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> now you're like, yeah, had Billy Bob on my mind. Uh, Martin Freeman. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, join us next time. We'll have Walter Center Armstrong.